Well, this morning, I want to give you a pep talk, a prayer pep talk. In our gospel reading from Luke, Jesus makes some astounding promises, and I want to point those out to you and convince you to believe him and to act on it. So, turn with me in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Luke chapter 11, and let's get started. First, a disclaimer. This sermon I'm preaching is uh, largely shaped, both in its main points and in a good portion of its actual wording, uh, by a sermon preached by Peter Lightheart, a pastor in Birmingham. I'll post my manuscript on our website, and, and you can compare it to your heart's content. What I said was original. What I said was totally Lightheart's that I just shamelessly plugged. One thing I ask, though, is that you don't tell me afterward that this was the best sermon you ever heard me preach. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Now, Luke chapter 11. The chapter begins with Jesus praying and teaching his disciples to pray by giving them what we now call the Lord's Prayer. It's this prayer that we and lots and lots and lots of other Christians all around the world through the centuries pray every week, many every day, but every week before we come and receive communion. And then Jesus follows all of that up with a parable about a man persistently asking for help from a neighbor. It's late at night and the neighbor is in bed his door is shut. As Jesus mentions, in that day, many families slept in the same room together, like we do when camping. So, so everyone is packed in pretty tight, which means if one person gets up, everybody wakes up. And so I can imagine this man coming late at night, right when the baby has finally gotten down to sleep. This neighbor and his family are so exhausted, and they've settled in for the night, they're warm in their beds, and they're, they have that giddy feeling that for the next six or seven hours, they can completely shut off their brains. But then there's a knock on the door. And the thought of it just makes me cringe, right? I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. And this neighbor inside the house, you know, he's probably pulling his pillow over his head, telling his kids to go back to sleep, shh, shh, praying and hoping that the man outside will just stop it and go away. But the knock comes again, and again, and again. And the man is so persistent, so shameless, that his neighbor eventually gets out of bed and helps him. What? What could you possibly want? I'll give you anything. My milk, my bread, my oil, my eggs, whatever. Just stop it. And so the point of the parable, of course, is not that God is like a reluctant neighbor. Uh, too tired and comfortable to get up and help. The point is that even a reluctant neighbor will respond to petitions. And if that's true, how much more 
You heard that phrase throughout the passage. How much more will your heavenly Father? And from here, Jesus adds straightforward promises. Ask, seek, knock. Go for it. Because everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. Didn't the man get what he wanted from his neighbor? Everyone who knocks is going to find an open door. And I can imagine the disciples getting pretty wide-eyed at this point. Really? Are you being serious, Jesus? Just ask? Just ask. Why, you don't believe me? Listen to another parable. This is verse 11 now. You fathers, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father, who is holy, unutterably good, nothing but good, Sheer and pure and absolute good. How much more does your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So you see what Jesus does here. His disciples have asked Him in verse 1, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus does. He gives them a prayer to use, a prayer obviously designed, suited for public use with all those uh, us and our pronouns. But the rest of Jesus' instruction for prayer, it's not exactly how to. He doesn't suggest a prayer journal or setting aside a particular time of day to pray. Or keeping track, keeping a record of answered prayers. Or using the acronym ACTS, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. Nothing wrong with any of that. I mean, all of those have been used to great effect for deepening one's prayer life. It's just not what Jesus teaches in this instance. Jesus wants to get across a more fundamental point. He's not interested in the how-to so much as in the who-to. What gives shape and energy and power and fervency and effectiveness to our prayers is not the method so much as it is the confidence that when we pray, we're praying to our Heavenly Father. So the point of this pep talk so far is pretty simple. Pray knowing that you pray to your heavenly Father. Pray in confidence that when you ask, you're going to receive. When you seek, you're going to find. When you knock at the door like that man did on his neighbor's house, eventually it's going to be opened. Pray knowing that you pray to a God who doesn't 
give stones or serpents to his kids. Believe Jesus. Believe what Jesus is saying here. And pray accordingly. So that's the first point. That's the first part of this pep talk. Remember to whom you're praying. And the second part is this. Live the way you pray. We always live the way we pray. They, they, the two always go together. If we never pray, then we'll live without a single thought to God or His will. Because prayer is essentially admitting that we are in need. And if we don't think we need anything, we'll never pray. If we pray timidly, or feebly, or fearfully, or pessimistically, then guess what? We'll live that way. We'll live worried, always fearing the worst in every possible circumstance, and feeling like there's nothing we can possibly do to change it. But if we pray in faith, if we pray in faith that we pray to our good and generous Heavenly Father, who gives nothing but good gifts, then we'll live confidently and thankfully and joyfully and boldly. And yet so often, that is not the way we pray. And so that's not the way we live. Our lives follow the path of our prayer life. But when we don't pray as Jesus taught us, we don't, get, we don't get to live like Jesus did. And the worst part of it all is that we excuse our disobedience here with piety and theology. Jesus tells us to ask God for the desires of our heart. But we look for excuses not to. We try to find loopholes in God's promises, qualifications that we have to meet in order to, to qualify for God's goodness to apply to us. We use our theology to justify our bland, vanilla mediocrity in prayer. We pray, but then we say, God is sovereign. He does what he wants. You know, he can answer or not answer. So sure, I can pray, but there's really no guarantee that God's going to answer. I mean, haven't you said or, or thought something similar to that? It's like, do we believe in prayer or not? Are we just praying because we feel like we have to? like we're supposed to, but deep down, we really don't expect anything to actually happen? I mean, if that's the case, we might as well just stop praying altogether. Because whatever kind of ritual we're doing when we pray like that, it's not really prayer. It's not really faith. T to me, it sounds a lot more like this weird kind of superstition. And look, there are variations 
on this line of thinking. Sure, we say, God gives all these great promises in the Bible. The Bible's full of them. But I'm not sure they're for me. Because I, in this moment right now that I find myself in, I might be the exception. God might decide not to fulfill his promises in my case. Or, sure, God's sovereign and cares for his children. I know that. But I'm not entirely sure that I'm his child. I mean, how do I know? I've done a lot of bad stuff. And all that stuff about election and choosing, I'm really not sure I qualify. So maybe I'm not his child. Maybe these promises are for someone else. So you see, we, we end up using God's sovereignty, his power, to excuse our pessimism, our laziness, our lack of vision. We say, I'm a miserable sinner. I don't deserve anything from God. Uh, I can barely lift up my head in his presence. I'll pray, I'll pray, I'll pray. But I won't get my hopes up. It's almost as if we think, poor God, dear God, has overcommitted himself, overpromised. And, and we need to kind of stand in the gap and protect God from his enthusiasm. Jesus was a little bit rash when he, when he made these promises in Luke chapter 11. And, and we need to provide, as the church, the qualifications that Jesus kind of left out. But God doesn't need our loopholes. He has committed just as much as he has wanted to commit. And he committed everything. We need to repent of our piety. We need to repent of the theology that we use as an excuse not to pray boldly. Now, God is sovereign. Absolutely. God does as he pleases. But the only God that is, the only God that exists, is the God who has committed himself to us by sending his son to die on a cross. Does that sound to you like a God who's concerned, worried about being overcommitted? Does that sound like, like the God of fine print and loopholes? God's sovereignty is not an excuse for our pessimism or our passivity or our inactivity. It's the opposite. Because God is sovereign, we can absolutely be sure that God hears and answers our prayers. Are you a miserable sinner? <laughs> I don't think so. Yes, you sin often, but sinner is a classification and that is not the class of persons that you are in. Remember what Paul said in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Surely there's a little bit of condemnation. A teeny bit. 
some condemnation. No. No condemnation. God judges you in Christ. He looks at you in His beloved Son. You are just as loved by God as Jesus is. If God says there is no condemnation for you, that you're righteous, who are you to, con- who are you to continue to condemn yourself? How dare you condemn yourself? God favors his children. But you say, I'm not sure I'm his child. Look at everything I've done wrong. Look at the path I've tread. But you are God's child. Because he brought you into his family in baptism. When God says in baptism, you are mine, he means it. Who are you to doubt that? Who are you to say, well, I'm not sure? If you think that God has good things, but refuses to share them with you, refuses to give them to you, then you have fallen into the devil's temptation. This is precisely what the serpent told Eve in the garden. God wants to keep his gifts for himself. He's not going to share. God is not the father who who gives to those who ask. He's a cheap and selfish father. He's a dragon like smog holding his treasures up in his lair. Let's give the right label to this sort of thinking. It's unbelief. Unbelief. We can surround it and support it with lots of pious Bible talk, but it's nothing but unbelief. It's unbelief to doubt that the sovereign God gives himself and all of his goodness to you. When God says, no condemnation, and you answer, give me just a few more moments for self-flagellation. That's not just false humility. It's unbelief. It's unbelief to doubt that God has placed you in his family, given you his family name. When you think that God withholds good from his children, that's unbelief. And it's an insult to the character of God. So repent of your piety. Repent of the faithless way you use your theology. Repent of twisting God's word into an excuse not to pray or to pray cautiously or to pray timidly. Repent of your false humility. Pray and live remembering Jesus' promise. Everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. Everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. God does not give snakes when we ask for fish. 
He doesn't give scorpions when we ask for eggs. He doesn't give stones for bread. He doesn't do that. He never gives evil things to his children. Never. He always and only gives good things to his children. Always. So here's the promise in a nutshell. God always gives you what you ask or something better. God always gives you what you ask or something better. You'll say, I've prayed for a lot of things (laughs) that I never got. And I get that. And I've experienced that countless times. We all have. You may really want something, pray diligently, and be disappointed. You may want something now, and it doesn't show up. You pray years and years and years, and it doesn't happen. Good things, not bad things, not selfish things, unselfish things, really good things. You'll say, I've prayed for God to do good things And all I get is suffering and frustration and failure. I prayed for relief from suffering and trial. But it keeps coming and it actually gets worse. What's happening here? Have have Jesus' promises gone to bunk? Do we have to qualify after all? Like, is, Is there a fine print that we're missing here? No. What's happening when our prayers aren't answered? In these instances, it's possible that you're asking for a snake or a scorpion. Were the things we asked for really good for us? The best for us? God may say no, like a good parent, because no is the best answer. It's also possible that he's giving us good things that don't appear good to us. Not at first. If you ask for relief from suffering and you get more suffering, uh, that means that God has given you the gift of tribulation. He may want to purge away sin, he may put you on the cross. To strengthen your faith. But whatever tribulation he brings, you can rejoice. You can be triumphant because remember what Paul said. Turn to Romans 5 with me. Romans chapter 5. Why can we rejoice in our sufferings? Listen to Romans 5, starting at verse 3. Paul says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. When you suffer, you're on the cross. 
where Jesus was. And that's where the living Jesus will meet you. You ask for relief. And he gives you more suffering. Not only to work these virtues into you, but to make you a living witness to your crucified Lord. And by your patient suffering, God demonstrates in your life that his power is made perfect in your weakness. He makes your life a living witness to the power of the gospel. He proves in your life that the gospel is real. What's going on when we don't get what we ask? It might be many things. But Jesus makes it clear that one thing is definitely not going on. This is not God giving you stones for bread. A snake or a scorpion instead of a fish. This is not God giving you the short end of the stick. This is not God keeping the door locked. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Ever. He gives good gifts to his children. Always. Nothing but good. God always gives you what you ask or something even better. So what is it for you? Come on. We've all been thinking about something. Some audacious request for the past several minutes. What is it for you? Is it healing from an awful disease? Or from woundedness or heartache? Is it friendship? Is it a relationship? Freedom, relief from loneliness? Is it salvation for a loved one? Is it success at work or in school? Is it money? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to treat God exactly like you would treat a loving, wealthy, powerful, generous father. I want you to, in the quietness of your heart, ask him for exactly what your heart desires. And I'm going to give you some time here in just a moment. For many of you, this will feel embarrassing. Even though you haven't voiced anything out loud. <laughs> You'll think, this is a really dumb request. Why am I asking for this? Or you, or you might think, this is unworthy of God. Or this is selfish. Or this feels like I'm asking a genie for something. Well, you're not. Genies give only three wishes. God gives a lifetime of asking and receiving. It's just the joy, the privilege 
of being a son or a daughter of the king. Will your requests be selfish? Maybe. But even then, does, does Jesus ever say not to pray about that? Let God decide whether or not you're being selfish. <laughs> He'll let you know. But you obey his promises. Ask for what you want. Ask for what you need. And let him decide what to do. He might give it to you. Or he might take those desires of yours and shape you into something you never dreamed possible. God always gives you what you ask or something even better. So let's suspend all disbelief on that for a few moments and silently ask God for the desire of our hearts. So do that now. And after a bit, I'll close our time in prayer.